All right, this is a challenging passage uh, for someone who's been a Christian a while, and uh, I, I trust there's going to be some stuff that's relevant to all of us today. Um, I was just considering uh, the other day the census. Who saw a couple of months ago the 2021 census results came out and uh, suggested, well, we'll say that uh, Christianity has fallen below the 50% mark for the first time in Australian history. Um, now, I know a few people were kind of throwing jibes at that. Um, I'm hoping by the end of today it will not matter to you at all um, because it matters not one bit uh, whether someone puts down Christianity on the census form. Um, and we're going to see this in a much more extreme way with today's passage, what actually matters in terms of our belief in God. So we're going to be reading from Mark 7. Um, thanks, John, for reading that before. I would encourage you to get it out on your phone or on your, in your Bible, Mark chapter 7, because we're going to go through it um, end to end, if you will. Um, I've kind of broken it into three sections that fit nicely over the passage. Uh, the first one is we're going to be talking about the Pharisees. I'm going to put them up a little bit. Um, I want to show you kind of how good they were in a fleshly sense. And then the next bit we're going to pull them back down again because that's what Jesus does. And finally, we're going to ask, well, what about me? Uh, how does this look for myself when I see what Jesus has done with these same people? So let's make a start. We're going to just read the first few verses, first five verses of Mark 7. Uh, it says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered to him after they came from Jerusalem and saw that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unholy hands, that is, unwashed. But the Pharisees and all the other Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thereby holding firmly to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they completely cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received as traditions to firmly hold, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with unholy hands? So we've been going through the book of Mark for some while, and the Pharisees, this is not the first time we've heard about them. There's been a couple of stouches already. Uh, Jesus angrily looked at them at one point, healing a man, because he could see that they were not happy he was healing him on the Sabbath. And uh, so... It, there's some history here. It's going to get more and more violent. Essentially, these same Pharisees and Sadducees will put him to death, and that is their desire. But let's just talk a little bit about them, because Jesus is about to pull them apart here very directly for the first time, just right in their face. And so it's worth just understanding a little bit about who are these Pharisees. Um, so there were two kind of main religious groups in the time in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were kind of priests. Uh, they uh, were kind of the esoteric love lot they were fairly liberal um, and they were kind of over you know, heavily involved in the temple so all the kind of the religious worship revolved around the temple they had a high position in that um, but they weren't really respected because they were kind of esoteric and kind of like to lord it over the pharisees on the other hand were more conservative and they were more the, for the people if you will um, in fact josephus says that in his time there were around six thousand of them but they were had such an influence over the common people that anything they said against the king or the high priest was simply believed they're highly respected. Um, in fact, when Paul's arguing uh, in Galatians uh, about his history to kind of, you know, I guess, demonstrate his own background, he, he kind of puts himself in their position and says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. It was known as a positive thing amongst the people. And zealousness is the key. The Pharisees were extremely zealous. Um, and I thought, I'll just go through a couple of things that they used to do because it does put us to shame a little bit. Um, 
one of the things they were known for was rigorous fasting. In fact, it was twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I believe. It might have been Tuesdays and Fridays, but essentially two days a week of full fasting. You go, okay, that's not bad, isn't it? Um, they had a massive emphasis on the word uh, to the point that, because they were kind of trying to democratise this the Judaism, if you will, away from the temple to make it more accessible to the common people. So they, kind of the synagogue became their institution. It's where they kind of, well, we're going to let synagogues be everywhere throughout um, Judea and they're going to preach the word. And it was really big for them. They kind of had a, you know, basically brought in a schooling system. So you would teach your young folk from as young as they were, you know, from, from being little tots, the ones that are running around here, and they would teach them the word of God to the point that by the age of 12, the, the average youngster would be expected to have memorised the entire Torah. That's five books, the first five of the Bible, they're big ones too. There's a lot in them. So that was your standard practice. You would memorise the full Torah. As a teenager, you would then start memorising the Psalms and the Prophets. So you can imagine by the time you get into any place of authority amongst these people, you pretty much have memorised the entirety of Scripture. It's an impressive feat and they valued it. Um, in fact, it was a distinction on the Sadducees who only really cared about the Torah. The, the Pharisees were very much about, no, the whole uh, law and prophets is relevant and uh, they, they put great value on the word. So really big there. Um, they were also big on tithing. So you know, they, they definitely tithe. They tithe to the point where they would tithe on things that you wouldn't think you'd have to tithe on. They'd get their herbs and spices. They'd come and mint and they'd tithe on even those things. So they were very big on that. Um, and, you, and used to give that quite clearly to, to people. So it was, it, was, it was a known thing that they would, they would tithe regularly. And uh, as far as prayer goes, um, that was huge as well. Three hours a day of prayer, nine o'clock for an hour, 12 o'clock for an hour, three o'clock for an hour which is quite compelling when you think about our own prayer life. You know, this is public, this is every day, three hours a day. And so I'm, I'm just putting out the kind of practices they were known for and why they were considered or respected amongst the common people because these were the zealous people of God. They were the people who cared and they basically devoted their entire lives around him and to the point where they would you know, do this exce well, excessive but substantial fasting, substantial prayer, massive emphasis on the word. It is respectable in a religious sense in every way. And then we look at the passage here as we come through Mark 7. Uh, we're told that uh, the, this encounter with Jesus, these particular Pharisees had come from Jerusalem. Uh, so we're not just dealing with any Pharisees now. You've got the entire hub of religious life comes out of Jerusalem in Judea. And these coming from there, it's a bit like when we get a professional from Sydney or something and we go, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're higher caliber than a meager little Hobart. Um, you're out in the, in the backside of uh, wherever this occurs. Um, and they come from Jerusalem. These are the big knobs. <laughs> um, the, essentially, they would be ex very much respected. And when we talk about the things that they've observed, they've observed the disciples not washing their hands um, and they're asking Jesus, well, why not? Um, what's the point of this whole washing the hands thing? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is a question of hygiene, of course, because, of course, it's gross. I don't want you to wash your hands before you eat the food. Um, that's not what the kind of washing they were describing. Um, essentially, in the law, um, in Exodus, you had this idea of the priests would need to wash the implements inside the temple. It was a ceremonial thing. It was that it needed to be clean to be of service uh, to God. And what the Pharisees had done, essentially, they're trying to take away a bit from the Sadducees who had the temple. They're trying to encourage worship everywhere, not just in the temple. So they were taking concepts like that and saying, well, this applies to all people. So we, as regular people in our synagogues outside of the temple, should be doing these kind of washings as a sign of purification. Not an entirely bad motive in terms of what they were trying to achieve. 
but where did it actually come from? Because we said the law said, and if you go to Exodus, it said the priests had to do this washing. Um, what is it that the Pharisees were actually doing in kind of teaching it? Because there's some references there to the tradition of the elders and the like. So often this question is, what is this? You, know, you may have heard of the Pharisees making up all these laws that um, you know, they kind of elevated to the standard of, of God's law, which is exactly right. Um, but it's not necessarily as simple as that. The Pharisees who would have come here would not be the ones inventing those laws. Um, in fact, they suggested that the laws that they were keeping had been passed down orally for millennia um, since the actual law was given by Moses. And so they had, at some point, it had been written down and it comprised some additional laws over to the original law that God had given. But the, it's, it's not entirely bad. Um, they actually used to call them, it's the Mishnah, the fence laws. The idea was to put a fence around the, the real law. So if you imagine that the law said, you shall not work on the Sabbath, what they would do is they would add clarity to that. So well, what does work mean? We don't know what it means. So um, you know, if I happen to have to walk a long way to get somewhere, um, is that work or is that not work? So they ended up basically creating a, about 1,500 or so extra laws that were just essentially more detailed application of the original law. Uh, so in that case, they'd say, if you walk more than three-fifths of a mile in a day, that was work. If you did less, it wasn't. Um, I'd say that one feels comical, but if you think about it, we do this all the time ourselves. Um, in fact, I'm thinking something simple like in relation to sexual purity. We know that we must be sexually pure. Um, but my parents would have told me, as they may have told many of you, that well, let, we, we consider it a law in this household that you would never go into a room uh, with a member of the opposite sex alone. Right? It's a fence, if you will. It's, it's not that there's something fundamentally morally wrong that I walked into a room and there was a member of the opposite sex there, but it's a protection mechanism. I don't want to you know, expose myself to a temptation or the risk of uh, disrepute, so I'm going to avoid that. So the basic idea of this fence law is not wrong. It's essentially a protection mechanism uh, around the law itself, around God's standard of righteousness. So when, the, so when the, the Pharisees have come to Jesus, they're essentially saying, well, look, we've been handed down this tradition. Um, it's respected, um, and it's, it's not something that they created out of nothing. Um, it's been handed down for generations and generations. Um, they've grown up into it. Uh, why are you not um, upholding it? So let's move on to Mark 7, uh, verse 6, where we see Jesus uh, respond in a very, let's say, harsh way. Verse 6, but he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts, setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honour your father and your mother, and the one who speaks evil of father or mother is certainly to be put to death. But you say... If a person says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is given to God, you will no longer allow him to do anything for his father or his mother, thereby invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So before we might have been seeing the Pharisees as some pretty decent folk, um, certainly very zealous in their application uh, of the law and in their actual religious devotion and activities that they did. Um, but here Jesus just kind of brings it all crashing down and gets straight into, into their heart condition. He says, Isaiah prophesied of them, uh, this people honours me with their lips, there's something outward to see that they love God, uh, but their heart is far away from me. And then he uses an example, and he says there's many others, but this is the example he gives. Uh, one of the uh, concepts in this 
oral law that the Pharisees had was this idea of Corban. It's based on Leviticus, which is essentially saying that, that you can devote something of your possessions to God himself. It's a way of saying, I'm going to set this apart and give it to God. It's a beautiful concept. And so Corban literally just meant, I'm giving this to God. It's devoted to him. And so the, the concept, great, but the way the Pharisees were able to use it then is in a very, you know, different manner where you go okay my father and mother are coming to visit I have a house there uh, which I should let them use for their benefit because I want to honor my parents and it was quite simply said that if I said oh no I'm going to make, make mark this house that they're going to use as Corbin I'm going to devote it to God and they could devote it to God before the fact so I'll say it's going to eventually be devoted to God it may be for my use at the moment but eventually that's going to be devoted to God they were forbidden from letting anyone use it and so they kind of use it as a mechanism to get around helping their parents essentially so it's, it's, it's a simple enough thing but it's just an example of how that law is able to be used uh, to contradict I guess God's real intent in terms of honoring your parents what I find really interesting is that if you look at Jesus interactions with the Pharisees over the course of his ministry in the other Gospels as well as here is he actually starts to kind of point the finger at every single practice of theirs all right so he's given an example here as a really kind of in your face one um, but we just before we were talking about all the different things they did you know they're, they're fasting um, does anyone remember what Jesus said about their fasting there was a in the Sermon on the Mount he said something in particular he said uh, you fast before men you have you put on sackcloth you have a sad face you want people to know you're fasting so even though that act, a holy act in its own right, um, and, and one that's honourable and, and being done you know, substantially two days a week, um, yet they've become compromised because they essentially say, well, now actually it, this makes me look good in front of people. People see me as a holy man um, and that's why I fast. Prayer ended up being the same thing. They would publicly pray and suddenly, oh, okay, they're doing this to show off. They're not actually doing it to genuinely pray. It gets worse. If you imagine if you're not really into prayer and you're doing it an hour three times a day, what they would end up doing is almost entrancing themselves to keep it up. Um, they would start to repeat things. Um, and you remember Jesus said, don't repeat yourself as the heathen do. Because they got themselves into this state that, okay, well, we're going to kind of entrance ourselves, get through this time, and we're going to repeat essentially rote-based prayers. And we've seen that in the, things like the Catholic Church will do the same things to this day, where you end up with a prayer just recited kind of off memory as though it's got some power in it. I said, don't repeat yourself as the heathen do and don't pray publicly. Pray in the closet to your father in secret, Jesus would tell us. So then you say, okay, well, surely on the word. You know, they, they had a great respect for the word of God, surely in that case. But even there, um, in, in the Old Testament, there was this idea of wearing uh, the word of God as a sign of remembrance. They did a couple of things. They put tassels in the bottom of their um, coats to essentially remind them when they saw it that they would you know, remind themselves of God. And they used to wear um, some of the scripture on them. Um, and these, these things were called phylacteries. In the end, um, the Pharisees would, would put this prominently on their head and they got these really big ones in the end to make it clear they valued the word of God so much. It was literally this box stuck on their head uh, with a section of the scripture in it. And, but Jesus again accused them, you're doing that not because you actually respect it, because you want men to believe or know that you can consider the word of God to be great and to respect you because of it. And in the same way, they'd lengthen their tassels to the point where they were tripping over them and have to kind of haul them over their backs. But say that, oh, they felt it's such an important thing to remember it that they would make it so ridiculously prominent as to get in your way. But again, Jesus is saying, it's all just to look good. When they tithe, what did they do? They'd trumpet it in the streets, bring the people in. Again, it's to look good before men. And you can just start to see that every single religious action they did, as compelling as it is, and we're going to talk about ourselves in a minute, so don't feel like you're going to get off 
out of this one. Um, but they, it, it was basically just brought, the rug was pulled out from underneath them. Everything they did had been compromised. And that's really the state of the heart that we've got to worry about. Uh, when Jesus says, this people honours me with their lips, they're, they're putting it out there, they're followers of God, but their heart is far away from me. There's a fundamental issue there with the heart, and we're going to get into that in a bit more depth in just a moment. But I do just want to ask the question, when we think about the way the Pharisees were brought up, the way they had the respect for the tradition, the way the Apostle Paul said I had that same respect for tradition, how does that relate to a Christian today? And I was just going to ask the question, like how many of you here were raised in a Christian home? Can I have a quick show of hands? If you were raised in a Christian home, yeah, which would be probably 80% plus of us, this, this is the danger. It, being raised in a Christian home, you get the benefit of being raised in the Word of God and understanding, but that's not what saves you. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, but fundamentally, you can end up very much like this, these Pharisees. You can end up understanding. You can end up going through various motions. You might find, for example, yeah, I'm going to church every Sunday. I, I honour marriage. I speak about these things. Um, I know it's right to read the Bible regularly and pray. And yet nothing's actually happened in here. And that's going to be the most important thing, as we see, that it's not the actions of religion um, that have any merit. It's not what you put on your census. It's going to be what's happening uh, inside the heart. So let's get into the punchy bit of this in Mark chapter 7, verse 14. So this is afterwards. Jesus has just slogged the Pharisees. And afterwards he said he called the crowd to him again and he began saying to them, listen to me all of you and understand there is nothing outside the person which can defile him if it goes into him but the things which come out of the person are what defile the person. Kind of makes sense but let's see what happens with the disciples and when he later entered a house away from the crowd his disciples asked him about the parable. Um, and he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding as well? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the person from outside cannot defile him? Because it not, does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. And you might have in brackets there, thereby he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which comes out of the person, that is what defiles the person. For from within, out of the hearts of people, come the evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behaviour, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the person. So this entire passage is just hitting home on what this idea of a heart, I say. Food doesn't go into the heart. What comes out of the heart defiles you. And what do we mean by heart? I think we have a general understanding um, in our culture when we describe our heart. It's kind of the inner person, yeah? And the way it's used in the, in the Old and New Testament, very similar. It refers to the entire inner person. Um, it's not just your feelings, it's the entire inner person. Maybe your mind, your thoughts, um, your inclinations, your, even your, your conscience is wrapped up, your emotions. Pretty much everything that's not your body, everything inside is what we mean when we say the heart. So what's going on inside of you that um, defines whether or not you're going to be right before God and whether you're defiled before God? And you'll notice here that Jesus contrasts foods quickly um, and just as a, a real quick aside there because obviously there's this idea of kosher food in the law, foods that you can and cannot eat. And here we're told Jesus declared all foods clean, uh, essentially by proving to that same point that food going to the body doesn't actually enter the heart. It's eliminated 
Paul said, you know, foods are to perish with the using, the same idea. They come, they go, they're not actually a matter of the heart. Um, and thus Jesus declares them clean. But obviously on this issue of heart, where Jesus starts talking about the heart that defiles you, and he gives this massive list of things that defile the person, of the attitudes of the heart. Now I've heard a few commentators usually take this go, we've got to start talking about um, you know, how we change our heart and the different things we need to make sure our heart is right in. Um, but I think it's a little bit more severe than that as I read this kind of whole thing just at face value. Um, and it flies in the face of our general culture as well, because what does our culture say about the inner person? You know, we, you know, aren't we taught everywhere? Disney loves it. Be authentic to your true self, the, the true self inside of you. you, know, you there's some good in there. Um, and this is the fundamental idea of modern society is that we are good inside and we're true to ourselves. That's the most noble thing you can possibly do. Um, whereas what Jesus is describing are the things that kind of defile the, the, the person. What's inside the heart is pretty awful. And so where you know, society might go, oh, we can excuse things because God knows our heart. Uh, we might have to be very careful there because God does know our heart. He knows what's going on in there. And the unfortunate thing is we can see quite clearly in our, in our society, some of those things that were just listed in that, that passage there, uh, we celebrate. I mean, we don't even run around kind of pretending they're not an issue. We, we go, yeah, that's great. I mean, sexual, sexual immorality, it's like, love it in this culture. And we celebrate it. In fact, we'll celebrate it with pride even and, and go far, far from what God intended. Now, deeds of greed and envy. I mean, we love getting rich. We love window shopping. You know, we love the, the whole marketing spiel that's about eliciting those desires and the satisfaction we get with a purchase. Like, it's just, we love this stuff in our culture. And this is kind of the issue. Where our culture saying we're good inside and all these things are great. Jesus essentially just kind of pulled the rug out from under everyone, not just the Pharisees here, and said... Fundamentally, on the inside, you're corrupt. And I think we've got to ask ourselves honestly from that list that we went through of, you know, the fact that it's our very thoughts, are we pure at all inside? You know, Paul, the apostle said in Romans, as he was looking at the law, that he was confronted by this idea of, of lust. You know, I would not have known lust unless the law had told me. And said, so, you know, it's, it's the very thoughts that defile the person. So it's not even enough to have this great self-control and restraint in your life, but the fact that the heart desires these things is a problem. And that just belies it. There's a, there's a whole range of scripture that kind of actually kind of hones in on this point. And I'm thinking even in the Old Testament, uh, Jeremiah 17 said, the heart is deceitful above all things, and even worse, beyond cure, such as its fundamental screw-uppedness, uh, we're, we're goners. Um, after some of you remember the story of Noah, um, that God essentially wipes the entire people out. Uh, after that, he, he promises not to destroy the earth again. But he actually has this little caveat in there. He says, even though the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, he's not going to destroy it, even though he knows that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Um, I think David in Psalm 51 kind of described it from the very beginning where he's saying, God, you need to clean my heart. And, and he acknowledges in verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity. From the very beginning, I was screwed up. And this is the, the thing we've really got to get our heads around. Are we going to understand the gospel at all? Are we going to understand our position? Are we going to stand here today as someone raised in the Christian home? Am I saved? Um, we have to fix this issue inside. We have to fix our heart. Now, Jesus said elsewhere in Matthew, when he was in, in relation to the Pharisees, uh, Matthew chapter 5, it's on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I say to you, unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So he was looking at the Pharisees and going, you've got to be more righteous than they. And of course, as a regular person, as a commoner there, you're going, wow, you know, these are the guys who pray and fast uh, all the time. They love the word. They've memorized the whole, whole thing. Um, how are we going to be more righteous than they? And you know, before the Pharisees, reality is a lot of ours that you'll hear is rather pathetic, let's be honest. Right? Like it's, it really doesn't come up to this. So how much more so? When Jesus said your, your righteousness must be beyond these people, how much more ourselves? And this is the great concern I've got as Christians growing up. If we don't realise where our heart's at, what actually happens. You know, we could attend church religiously every week, every Sunday for your entire life. It doesn't prove anything regarding your heart. You could fast twice weekly and it doesn't prove anything. You could pray for those three hours a day and it on itself doesn't prove anything. You can memorise the scripture far better than Jordan here and anyone else I know and it's still on its own does not mean anything if the heart is corrupted. So that is the basic implication. If the Pharisee's heart is screwed up, what about ours? And as Christians... Just because we come to church and do the same kind of motions proves nothing as well. All right, the heart needs to be fixed. And this ultimately comes to the crux of the entire question that we're raised with with Matthew, or sorry, in this, in this passage in Mark. How are we going to fix the heart? All right, is it some kind of whipping of self-discipline where I just kind of beat my thoughts into shape and gradually kind of move towards it? And look, I firmly believe that it needs a fundamental rework a knocking down, a replacement. And I'm going to pull out a passage from Ezekiel which kind of defines it very precisely as that is the way. Now, it's funny, this particular passage I'll quote from Ezekiel is actually referenced in two separate places, very, very similar. So it's, it's repeated. Um, one in chapter 11, one in chapter 36. So I'm going to read the one from chapter 36 where God is promising to his people who are broken and, 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 and desperately in need of him. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean, he says. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And he's speaking towards the days that we know in Jesus Christ. He says, moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful and follow my ordinances. So the reality is the broken heart is such a problem that it's not something we're going to fix on our own. Uh, in fact, we, kind of the scripture essentially calls us all under sin. We're essentially incapable of getting out of it ourselves. It requires a divine intervention. And just thought we'd break that, what God does there down into kind of three things. There was a sense of cleaning the heart. Um, so if we think, for example, uh, in that same psalm I mentioned before, Psalm 51, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Um, how is it going to be cleaned? Uh, one of the beautiful things in, in Acts when you see um, God pour out his spirit on the Gentiles is that as afterwards Peter's having to defend to the Jews, why did God go to the Gentiles? And he says, well, God made no distinction between us and them because the, he cleansed their hearts by faith. That's Acts 15.9. So God's in the work of cleansing their hearts and we can see the application here that it is this act of the gospel and of belief where God comes and cleanses them. Right. And we need Jesus for that. We're going to talk about, about that in just a second. Um, then he says, give you, I need to give you a new heart. All right? um, some of you might remember in, in John chapter 3, Jesus has this amazing chat with, with one of the Pharisees um, where he says, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again, fundamentally changed. And we get that language picked up all over the place. 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul uses the term, 
if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. He's been created again. In Ephesians, it says, put on the new self. There's a fundamental change. It's like a replacement. You've been given a new heart. So that's necessary. You're cleansed. You get given a new heart. And then finally, God's spirit. He says, I'll put my spirit in you. And it's, it's interesting how it interacts with the heart. Because if you look at 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul says, God sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Um, in Ephesians 3, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Um, and so not only is it a new heart, but it's one in which God himself dwells. Romans 5, a hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. He's doing a work in our heart with his spirit in there. And that is the fundamental thing we need to get our head around because if you're going to look at a Pharisee and you're going to look at a true believer, the difference is that their heart's been changed and it's not been changed by an act of theirs. It's been changed by an act of God. To be born again is something that he does. And we reference John 1 for that. He's born again by the will of God. And that is going to be the true evidence. The true evidence of a Christian is that their heart has a true affection and nature towards God. And he loves him with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. Yeah? And so that's the question I really want to have today. Is that let, let's, If we pull away our behaviour and our religious activity, um, has our heart actually been changed? And we're talking before um, Jill said to the kids, you know, Jesus is on the path towards the cross um, and that is fundamentally where he's going with this um, Jesus doesn't preach the entire gospel in this one passage uh, but his entire life is leading to that same point we've got this broken heart and that heart is defiling us and there's only one way that that's going to get cleaned and the first act on our part is that we repent we acknowledge our sins and repent and you see a big part of that when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees is they were hard of heart they refused to acknowledge it they would continually argue against him uh, whereas he compared a broken sinner uh, who was appalling and yet he would come before God, I am broken, I'm in need of you. So that is our first step, uh, that we acknowledge our sin, that we are broken before him. And then we believe on Jesus Christ because at that cross, he took away uh, our sin. He paid the price for it and we're told that in that act, uh, we become children of God and in that belief, uh, we know that we are born again, that that fundamental nature inside is changed. And I just don't want anyone going away today going, yeah, I think I'm changed. I'm pretty happy that you know, my life looks all right. Things must be okay with God. So it doesn't matter what your life looks like um, in, in those essences. All right? um, there's all, the heart's always going to lead to true good behaviour. But don't have this idea that um, just because you've got some good religious behaviour that's in any way confirming your state before God. You need a changed heart. And the way you're going to know that it's because the heart is fundamentally for God. It loves him uh, and you love him with your whole heart. So I pray that for you all. Um, this passage ends with a Syrophoenician woman, um, which is the one Jill talked about. I'm not going to go into that because I think we're kind of a bit tight on time. Um, but just understand that the essence of that is that it is relevant to all of us. Jesus was preaching to the Pharisees. He was going to the Jews, but he went to the Jews first. Uh, fundamentally, the gospel is for all of us as Gentiles as well. I've quoted some passages to that effect already. But let's just make sure that uh, when we see these words, we can look through our exterior behaviour and look through the things we do to make ourselves look like good religious people and understand is our heart truly changed. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that, that your word speaks truth and life to us, Lord, and that you cut deep. You cut deep within us, Lord, that you expose the condition and nature of our heart, Father. 
Lord, I pray, Lord, for those who have uh, not acknowledged that, have not acknowledged their state before you, Lord, that you would convict them. Lord, I pray that it would be repentance and that you would bring about believing faith, Lord, that they would turn to you and believe, Father, in your name. So I pray for all of us, Lord, and for those who have been changed, Lord, for those who have been born again, Lord, that we would continue to live in that same spirit, in that new creation, putting on the new man, Father. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.